This is the Heart to Heart Foundation podcast. It will be covering a walk from the geographic centre of Australia to the centre of the nation's capital in Canberra to raise awareness of the mental health issues faced by our first responders. We ask a lot of the people in our police, emergency services and all frontline workers. That takes a big toll on them and their families, which is why this walk is happening. These are just everyday people that have to do extraordinary things. These people are just like my dad. Welcome to the Heart to Heart Walk podcast. In today's episode, we're talking to Jamie Caldwell, who's had a range of career lines since I've known him. And uh, we're going to have a chat about a different perspective on some of the things we've spoken about in other episodes about the impact of emergency services life on family, because Jamie is the son of a, for a police officer. So, g'day, Jamie. Hey, Matt. How are you? I'm good. Thanks very much for coming on. Yeah, man, I, I must admit, going back uh, a handful of years ago when we were working side by side in a in a couple of different capacities, I never once would have ever thought I would have been sitting here on a podcast talking to you about what we'll, what we'll cover today. So, uh, yeah, look, thanks very much for coming on. No problems, mate, no problems. And I have to say the same thing as well, to be honest. Um, yeah. yeah. Definitely a lot has changed. Yeah, a lot's over, changed for me. Yeah, <laughs> over the years. So, yeah. yeah. I, I really appreciate you coming on because I know about your background and what I know about it. You've got some really interesting backstory to your own careers and, and also uh, of more recent interest for myself is, you know, what your life was like as a young young bloke. So, um, look, going right back to the very beginning – just tell us a little bit about where you grew up and what you were like as a kid at school and yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, mate, Wollongong born and bred and haven't left the gong either, um, specifically the uh, the northern suburbs uh, of, uh, of Wollongong. So um, Winona Bulli is, is my, uh, my stomping ground, so to speak. Um, yeah, look, I grew up in a you know, fairly traditional household, mum and dad, um, a sister, younger sister. I was the eldest of two. Um, Grandparents, um, fairly close and and available. Um, And extended family, fairly available as well. Um, Primary school years, um, attended um, Catholic primary school in uh, in Wollongong itself, the the, the, uh, sort of um, just the outer suburbs of Wollongong. Um, High school was... um, uh, Edmund Rice College in Wollongong, um, all boys high school. Um, I, I did interestingly though, and this is probably where it does get interesting. My story is I only went to year ten in high school. Uh, left, left at um, yeah, left the last day after we finished at that time the the school certificate, and the following day started working on the beach for Wollongong City Council as a as a lifeguard. Right, um, as I a, did not as know a that. Fifteen year old. Yeah. Wow. Um, mate, school wasn't for me. And when I say school wasn't for me at the time, I wasn't, a, I, I, you know, I wasn't a shit at school or anything like that. Um, I definitely challenged some teachers at school. Um, <laughs> but now I look back on it, um, school just didn't fit me. Um, it, it wasn't giving me the stimulation of what I needed or what I required. Uh, and it just got to this point where I remember having the conversation with mum that I really 
don't want to do year 11 and 12. I don't see any interest in it. I'm, I'm not seeing the value of what year 11 and 12 is going to give me. And at that point in time as well, I must admit, I wasn't sitting there going, I want to go to uni. Yeah. Um, there was nothing that was really sort of sparking any interest at uni. Yep. And I will also admit that I don't think I really knew what I wanted to do in life either at that point in time. Um, definitely knew I wanted to work the beaches as a lifeguard. Yeah. Um, that that was one thing I, I definitely wanted to do. So, yeah. When, you haven't when stopped that, that, have you? You've been doing that since you were 15 years old. So, yeah, look, um, professionally as a lifeguard, I did close to about 15 years and that was a mix and match of, of full time. Um, so I did spend um, did spend seasonal uh, well, full-time hours across the seasonal space of, oh, of yeah. September yep. to April with Wollongong Council, but I did spend a couple of years running Kiama Council's lifeguard service as their chief lifeguard. Um, and then in between all of that, I did work casually for um, close to about 11 years with Shell Harbour City Council as well, and, and a yeah, bit okay. of casual back with Wollongong too. So overall, um, yeah, close to 15, 16 years in the, the professional ocean lifeguarding space, but then also the volunteer element of surf life saving. Um, been involved in that since I was, um, yeah, six years of age, pretty much, as, wow. a, as a young nipper, all the way through to to now. I'm, um, yeah, president of, uh, of Bulleye Surf Life Saving Club, which yeah. probably dive into how I ended up in that role uh, a little bit later. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, the, the school piece made it just, like I said, it wasn't for me. Um, I, I still remember and, and do joke about this with mum. Um, there was a, I think she was a, a science teacher um, and was a, uh, a homeroom teacher, I think they were called oh, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, right. at the time, said I would, when it was getting towards the year, year, end of year 10, and obviously she must have been one of the teachers that I challenged. This is a, this a, is a PG show, mate. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, nah, all above board, all above board. Um, so she said to me, I remember one day that, no, sorry, it was a it was a careers counsellor. She said to me, I'd never make it. I need to think about what I'm doing, need to stay in year 11 and 12, need to work out what I want to do at uni. You'll never make it in life. And uh, working as a lifeguard um, is not going to be any good for you and is, is not going to not going to do anything for you. You, you yeah, really right. need to think about what you're doing. But basically said, you're not going to make it in life. And um, How to motivate people, right? Yeah, exactly right. I'd love to go back and just what go. What a great career's advice. Hey. <laughs> um, so, yeah, sort of, you know, the, the younger years as a kid, mate, surf club, swimming, rugby league, rugby union in the winter, you know, the traditional sort of piece if, if you, you know, grow up in that that traditional kind of Aussie family, so yeah, to speak. Yeah. Um, you know, nothing out of the, the ordinary for myself. Um, pretty, I suppose, in my younger years, pretty timid, pretty quiet. Definitely I was confident, but not, you know, I wasn't someone who was out there or outlandish or, or, you know, even spoke a lot. A lot of people would reflect if you asked them when I was a kid, very quiet kid, just kept yeah, to myself. Okay. But um, You've yeah, changed. I, You've changed, yeah, mate. Definitely. <laughs> I get told that, yeah. Um, so, yeah. look, I, I think it was just purely so, – so this is definitely one thing I reflect on. A lot of my friends are older than me. A lot of my connections are older than me. When I was playing sport in my younger years, I had more success in the older age groups than I okay. did in my age group. So I think, I don't know, I think I think I was just always in, just always in that piece of, of being uh, a bit more mature than, yep. than the actual age I was. And, and an old soul is what I was looking for. Yeah, um, yeah. right. Um, which, you know, probably 
gets me to the point now where I am career-wise and, and everything else I do, which probably explains, um, you know, uh, I, don't, I don't like to give away my age, as you know, <laughs> um, but if, if people do know my age and know kind of what have I achieved or what I have achieved and everything like that, some people do sit back and go, oh, yeah. right, you, okay. You've packed kind of, a lot in. You've packed yeah, a lot in. Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, I don't leave any door open. Uh, don't, yeah. don't leave any door closed, sorry. Yeah, I, like, yeah. I like to open doors and, and see what's on the other side. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, mate, school, moved on from school and obviously, as I said, started working the beaches. Um, during winter, I did a, for the first couple of years, did a, a Cert 3 in outdoor recreation. Um, and that's where I, you know, got the first taste of, of things like ropes um, and and working at heights and things along those lines, not yeah. thinking that that was going to come back at any stage or, you know, I'd end up in that space down the track. Yeah. I then um, ended up in a, a professional paid role with Surf Life Saving in the Illawarra, um, managing the, the local area, spent a bit of time as a, as a volunteer uh, member um, very very briefly as a uh, a rescue swimmer on the the Westpac Choppers, um, which was brilliant. Would have loved to have done more of it, but the opportunity mm. just dried up pretty much as I as I kind of started to go through the training. Yeah, right. Um, and that was around that time when you might remember the whole Westpac. <laughs> going to toll uh, oh, yeah. as it was, uh, whoever it was back in the day, CHC and CHC yeah. then toll, yeah, yeah, yep. all all of that. So you know that that then made me get sort of go, okay, what do I do next? Um, yep. I will admit I spent a bit of time thinking that real estate might have been the question, might have been the the, the really? answer to the question. Wow. Did, only about eight months and realised it wasn't for me. And then anyway, back into sort of more the back working professionally with Surf Life Savings, still lifeguarding, and then things started to grow from there. I, I went off and did um, my own uh, paramedic degree yep. and then started working in, in that field both privately and casually uh, around the place, um, so with a lot of private organisations um, uh, that provided paramedical services um, back before that was popular. Yep. Um, uh, which there's obviously a lot of lot of mobs around like that now, but back when I was doing it, there wasn't. Yeah, most of that was all done by uh, like contracting out the state or territory services, wasn't it? Yeah, so. correct. Yeah, yep. Yeah, um, wow. And then that sort of bounced on from there. Still lifeguarding. Um, I, I ended up running Clamers lifeguards for a couple of seasons, uh, and then uh, I started with my paramedic quals and a few other bits and pieces. I stumbled across the fact that um, there's actually private emergency services in yeah. the West, in WA. So I, I took a punt. I just started uh, applying for jobs left, right and centre um, over in WA. And um, I then realised that I didn't have all the necessarily, all the qualifications I needed. So I had all the paramedic and the medical stuff, but yeah. I needed the fire rescue component. So, mate, I, I borrowed some money and went across to WA and, um, jumped in, did the qualifications I needed, and I think it was um, you know six six weeks over there doing that, uh, and then an opportunity come up uh, through people that I met while I was over in WA living. So the family was back home here, my wife and young bloke at the time, still living back here. I went over there for that six week period, did all the training I needed to do, living out of a camper van. Um, Met uh, met a heap of people, and that opened doors up for me in that yeah, industry. Right. And then it sort of just went from there. Managed to land a role, uh, fly in, fly out, two weeks on, two weeks off. Started off as as just a, a base level 
uh, emergency services officer, fire and rescue officer over there. And then very quickly, just they obviously worked out what my capability was and what I could do. And it sort of just grew from just there. Just grew. Yeah, right. Yeah. So we talk, we're talking about a mine site or other industrial sort of site? So first started off on a mine site. So it was yep. um, the Roy Hill development, Gina oh, Reinhardt's yeah. big okay. iron ore development over there. Yep. So spent spent a couple of years there. And then that turned into another opportunity with Rio Tinto then, which the opportunity with them was, yeah, looking after all of their um, medical fire rescue and security for uh, not only a mine site, but a town as well. Um, yeah, it's, uh, they've got some amazing arrangements over there, haven't they, compared to New South Wales? Well, what I know, you know, like when I when I learned about a few of the uh, setups they've got there with a the fully privatised like emergency response yep. capability that covers a civilian town, it's like, wow, that's bizarre. Correct. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that, that's that's exactly what I was involved in for a number of years, um, coming back and forth. So I still lived in Wollongong the whole time, flying back right. and forth. Uh, that so, would have been tough. Yeah. Young family, um, yeah. Young family, um, uh, so the first, you know, three to four years of my young bloke's life, I was probably only around for half of it in reality. Yeah. And, you know, my wife, an absolute champion, did it um, did it kind of as a single parent. But, you know, at the same time as well, it, it was working for us. Um, we, we were making it work. Yeah. But then I will admit, you know, it was only sort of, I think it was about five, nearly six years of, of doing that. And it, it got to me. Um, yeah. Uh, by the by, the time I finished over there, I was doing an eight day on, six day off roster. Um, yeah, wow. And that, that was hard. Yeah. That that was that was hard. So, yeah, sort of come back home. Um, thought I'd lend me hand into um, my own. And I must admit, I wasn't just doing that. So through that whole time, I was working the beaches as well. Um, I was also heavily involved in. Uh, first aid training, but then also with the other skills that I was building on, rope rescue, swift water rescue, road crash rescue, I was also involved in training. As the the industry grew on the East Coast, yep. I, I managed to get involved in that around the place with some different organisations. And then I ended up getting to a point where I realised I could do this myself, set up my own RTO, you know, do the training, the accredited training, the not accredited training, provide the first aid, the medical and all that kind of stuff. So we jumped in, we gave that a go, um, and that was um, that was pretty successful. But I must admit, it only took twelve months, and I was bored, just really? absolutely bored of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah it was like right. tick challenge done. Right, what's next? I can't okay. keep doing this forever. Yeah, yeah. Um, jump back into the mining industry, back up into Queensland, working for a company up there that provided fire rescue, medical security, mainly across the the open. Um, open cut coal mines yep. um, in the Bowen Basin sort of area was, was the main main piece. So looking after all their contracts, setting up new contracts, taking over contracts, you know, being the, the subject matter expert, et cetera, et cetera. Six months of that and I was like, no, You're I'm up. flying out of Sydney on a Monday. I'm flying back into Sydney on a on a Thursday or a Friday. I'm yeah. still working across the weekend. I'm like, nah, this, this is shit. I've had enough yeah. of this. And then that was a point in time where I sort of went, the the other thing that was irking at me too, all this work that I'm doing in the private industry, I felt like I was um, wasting time, but also I was serving I was serving people that didn't really appreciate it, and I really wanted to get back into that, which I did through my volunteer aspect of the surf club, but you know, very much community minded. I wanted to get back and and be serving the community. Yeah. 
And then that's when sort of just went, nah, look, I'm, I'm now at a stage in life where, and if I rewind a little bit, I did want to join the cops and dad spoke, dad talked me out of it yeah. um, back when I was, uh, when I turned 18. And at that time, if I joined the cops then, I would have gone to Goulburn on the old scheme of, you know, everything was paid for <laughs> and what you would have gone through. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, everything paid for, not a uni degree that you're paying for yourself and living yeah. down there, et cetera, et cetera. It's so crazy I think now. I would have been one of the last courses that they put through in that old okay. setting. Yeah. And he, he talked me out of it. And, and it's something, you know, we'll probably dive into, but it was around yeah, his definitely time. definitely want to he, get back to that, yeah. He was having a few issues with the cops and, and talked me out of it. I now sit back and I, I do kick myself. Yeah. I wish I did. But also at the same time, I wouldn't have had the experiences that I've experienced and where I've got to now. But I do look back and think, man, if I had joined the cops when I was 18, where would I be? Where would I be now yeah. um, within the cops? What would I be doing? Um, so... <laughs> Anyway, it could be a really um, could be a really sad story, mate. You could be just on the on the bum wagon out of uh, I don't know St Mary's or somewhere. <laughs> nah, definitely definitely not. I guarantee that one. <laughs> <laughs> no, nah, not you. Actually, yeah, that's true. Nah, that wouldn't that wouldn't be your storyline. But <laughs> I would have I would have talked my way out of that pretty easily. Not that um, there's anything wrong with GDs at St Mary's. It's just uh, you know correct. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> I did, well, look, and as time went on, I ended up spending a bit of time out that way, just not in GDs, but, yeah, but right. supporting Northwest yeah. Metro. Yeah. And um, yeah, so once I left the mining industry, that was when the piece was not. Nah, I want to get in back into something in government. I want to, I want to be in emergency management. You know, what what can I do? And I I knew about the the region emergency management officers roles, yep. the Remo roles within New South Wales that are employed civilian role employed by New South Wales Police, but you know are, are the um the right hand men and women to uh, the sworn cops for everything EM related for those that aren't aware of the roles. Yep. And um, so I went, nah, stuff it, I'll put my hand up for one and um, just missed out on one in, in Central Met. Um, and I won't, won't mention names because it'll give away too much stuff, but uh, <laughs> just just missed out on one in Central Met, got, got put on an e-list and then through other connections um, found out that uh, a long-standing Remo, and, and keep in mind at this time when I got in a Remo role, they were as rare as hen's teeth. Yeah. You know, most of the Remos had been serving for I've been in 10, those roles 15. a long time. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yep. So yeah. I was sort of one of the first that that come in off off a lot of that old guard, so to speak. Um yeah. highly respected old guard, not not any disrespect to mm. to, to any of the old ones. Um, because yeah, they they definitely did some absolutely brilliant work and and set the Remo roles up for success. Um so I found out that that one of one of the older Remos was was retiring and there was a position becoming available at Northwest Met. And as the saying goes, it's not what you know, it's who you know. I, yeah. I leveraged that, put the feelers out, let people know that I was on an e-list. And then, um, yeah, Northwest Met realised, well, it's going to be a heap easier to take someone from an e-list than do a recruitment. And yeah. bang, I was in government. There you go. So, yeah, in, in the Remo role for a period of time and, and made in the back of my mind, I always saw the Remo role as that was my that was my entry into government because mm-hmm. I, I will admit I went from the mining industry where pay-wise conditions I was up pretty high, yeah. and I, I took a big a big hit, <laughs> a massive hit. Yeah. Um, but I saw that as my nah, this, this is to 
you know, continuing on the same path that I was on, but this yeah. was to get out of private. This was to get out of the mining sector, um, continue to use my EM skills and everything that I developed across not only EM, but lifeguarding, lifesaving, et cetera, et cetera, and, um, and start to serve the community in a different way and, and the Remo role was at. And in my mind, it was... I'll sit in this role and and see what doors I can open. And, mate, it was literally a bit over 12 months later that an opportunity came up with Transport for New South Wales. And then that, you know, for four years with Transport, that that grew into some pretty significant work with them. And then, yeah, about five months ago, six months ago, I left Transport and and had a, a fairly unique opportunity to join the Office of Energy and Climate Change as... Director of Energy Operations, which also has me as the Energy and Utility Services Functional Area Coordinator, the USFAC, uh, which is one of nine functional area roles on the, the State Emergency Management Committee and, and overseeing that, that functional area from a, an energy and utility point of view, plus a number of other bits and pieces that I have in my portfolio. But yeah, it was a, an opportunity that came completely left to field and yeah. obviously everything I'd done had sort of got me to this point to open up this kind of door and yeah, here yeah I am. that's amazing i bet i bet <laughs> yeah. you never saw that one coming but yeah wow what a no. no yeah that's a that's an amazingly big transition i guess you know from you know where you know <laughs> 15 year old kid on the beach to uh yeah now now cracking on with that that's a that's fantastic yeah. So listen, I want to go back and have a bit of a chat about some of those things in detail. And one of the things that I absolutely want to talk to you about is that that, that privatised emergency response capability yep. uh, as a first responder, uh, albeit whether that's to the confines of a particular site or town mm. or whatever in WA. But yeah, because I don't. Yeah, there's a lot of people that probably wouldn't even understand that those capabilities exist to the level that they're actually implemented. Uh, not only you know, not only at big mine sites, but at certainly other places too. But yep. uh, before that, I'd, I've often talked to a lot of people about uh, what I know the impact and effect has been on my own kids as a result of what I've done in mm. my careers, and I'm just interested to hear from you about what life was like as the son of a police officer. Yeah, well, uh, pretty pretty interesting is what I would say, and and I think um, uh, part of that would be uh, dad's dad's time in the cops. So um, Keith Keith Caldwell uh, is his name, Cocky Caldwell. A lot of people know him by. Um, look, dad joined the cops in '79 as as a junior trainee in that old old system that they yeah. had. Um, went straight went straight to the Sydney drug squad. So completely different to these days. You know, you go to Goulburn, you do your X amount of months down there and then probationary constable, you, you go to a go to a, a pack. Um, I think they're called these so days. So he went um, straight through Redfern to a squad? Went straight through to the Sydney drug squad. Wow. Yep. I don't yep. think In I've 79. ever heard of that. Yep. Um, as a junior trainee. Um, so, you know, just that start for his career, two things set him up for his career that he had through the cops. And, and, you know, I'll, I'll touch on what he did throughout his, you know, nearly well, a bit over 30 odd years in the job, um, which, which makes sense. Um, but at the same time as well, you know, if you ever want to talk about setting up for failure, 
um, in regards to mental health and and mm. um, exactly what you know the heart to heart walk is all about, bringing awareness to yeah. to um, you know especially post traumatic stress in our yeah, in our yeah. first responders. Yeah, great way. You know, go and do a couple of months at, at the old Redfern and then here, go to the go to the Sydney Drug Squad where, you know, back in, in that late seventies, early eighties, the, the Sydney Drug Squad was pretty pretty ruthless in what yeah. they were what they were doing and, and the operations uh, and the customers that they were dealing with as well. It wasn't wasn't your petty on on the street, you know, crime or, or tickets or, or that bad kind of old stuff. Days. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So look, admittedly, I wasn't around then and that's probably starting to give away my age a little bit. I, I wasn't around <laughs> then, but uh, mum definitely was. Mum uh, and dad were, were together through that whole period of time. You know, then, then he moved into GDs around um, Sutherland and Ingerdine for um, uh, into the early 80s, then then moved down to GDs uh, around the Gong, where, you know, he we're from. Um, spent some time in Country Swass as well um, when, they, when that was around. And yeah, then, right. Uh, Wollongong Foot Patrol, um, which uh, for those that know the old Foot Patrol days, the old Foot Patrol squads, very... Yeah. Um, very unique little <laughs> operations that don't exist anymore. Yeah. Caramel GDs, but then it was it was the nineties where he sort of got out of uniform and and went back to that that start that drug squad start where he ended up uh, at the drug unit and surveillance in uh, Major Crime Squad South. Oh, yeah. um, was there for uh, a number of years. And w- when we talk about PTSD, which which I'm very open about, he he did suffer from quite badly. Right. Um, uh, that that period of time at, at Major Crime Squad South, um, he did have uh, around '93 a little bit of a little bit of an episode, bit of a breakdown, and and came back to GDs at at, uh, at Southo and and Port Kembla. Um, Southo probably wasn't as bad mid '90s. It was probably still that that outpost, very quiet, probably a good place to go if you're maybe struggling with things. Yeah, but right. Port Kembla probably not no. in the in the mid '90s. <laughs> Kind of got his shit back together, I think, and then back into plain clothes. Um, gaming and Vice Squad uh, attached to Major Crime Squad South for a number of years. Yeah. Then into the um, the Drug and Organised Crime Squad um, as part of the, the different strike forces in crime agencies. And then the big kicker was 10 years at the undercover branch um, with SSG. So he, he, he was a full-time UC years. operative. Yeah. Now, UC operatives are only meant to do three years. He spent 10 years at the UCs wow. uh, until he finished. So, look, to, to answer your question, I know that's a bit bit long-winded, but I think to give people some some perspective, my early days, I, I, I don't really remember him in uniform because my time of being a kid, I remember when he was around Southo and Port Kembla. I remember because they, they mid-'90s, that would have been the, uh, the old V6 Rodeo, Rodeo yeah, boxes. definitely was. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I do remember vision of him seeing him in uniform in one of them in yep. and around Wollongong one time. Um, I do remember him in uniform with the old uh, F-150s, which is a very, very early memory of mine. Um, I think it was – I think the story is it was my auntie's 40th um, <laughs> and it might have been a Saturday night and it was back in the days where it was a completely different time. Yeah. But there might have been a few of them that turned up just to make sure the party <laughs> was still, you know, okay and safe. Yeah. Uh, those that know will read between the lines there. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, but the rest of the time, mate, he was playing clothes and specialist yeah, right. units. So all I remember, you know, his time in the cops was – him not talking about a lot of stuff. Yeah, he wasn't a 
So he loved to drink, but he didn't drink at home. So he wasn't the kind of the guy that come home and would crack a beer open at home. He right. would only drink when he was with mates or it was a social event or something along those lines. Okay. So, you know, yes, probably over the years, abused himself with alcohol on, on nights out and whatever else, but not yeah. someone at home on the drink, you know, every afternoon, every yeah, night right. after, after a day at work. But, yeah, for us, we a lot of that time, no one – well, those knew him, knew he was a cop, but it wasn't advertised that he was a cop. Yeah. Um, and, and our life kind of revolved around a fair bit of secrecy in a lot of that stuff as well, yeah. Um, yeah. especially at the UCs. Like, you know, that's that's completely completely different identities. Um, yeah. I won't go too much more into it. But um, so, yeah, look, I suppose for me it was very much a um, – Every now and again, something would come up on TV where he might sit there and go, oh, I've been working on that job. Okay, um, yeah, yeah. So, you know, those kind of things. And that would give you a bit of an insight and you'd kind of then sit there and watch the news and go, oh, geez, yeah, radio, okay. What would you do in that? Oh, not much. Yeah. But as time went on, and especially once he got out of the job, he would release more info. But then also as I got older and got to know his mates more and, and I started working with the cops meeting guys and girls that he'd worked with stories yeah, I, yeah. you know i then got to understand more what actually what, one thing i do remember one of the earliest memories and this would have been when he would have been around the drug squad myself and uh and a mate of mine uh maddie freeman who's um uh, for those in surf life saving circles would know uh, absolute legend of um of surf life saving surf sports when we were young uh i remember this one time and and matt's dad noel freeman used to be in the cops as well for a couple of years but then got out and went into mining down here in uh, in the illawarra up over the mountain i remember noel uh, asking dad to do a bit of a as we were getting a tad older do a bit of drug education for us oh. um so you know when you've got an old man that's in the drug squad the drug yeah. education was the controlled <laughs> drug box opened up okay this is this this is that oh yeah right you know, yeah, this is yeah. this this is that don't touch that this is what this is made of and his specialty in that space of drugs like Mate, he would rattle off the different type of concoctions that were being made, what gangs were using what, what they were cutting it with. Yeah. He 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 knew all that off the back of his hand, and 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 hence why you know obviously, as he went into the UCs, became a a very skilled operator in that space, being yeah. able to to talk the talk and know exactly what he was what he was yeah. talking about. So drugs drugs and bikies were were his sort of big main specialty. So you know when you talk about all that as a family could be perceived as very stressful, very secretive. Definitely we were we were careful about how we did things and what we did and, and that was probably all things rubbing off from him about yeah. how he would go about in life. Definitely under the radar, you know. Um, so I grew up, I would say I grew up in, in, a, in a lot of... Oh, I knew a lot more, and this probably goes to my old soul comment, that I made earlier, I I knew a whole lot more about the world than anybody anywhere near my age yeah. really knew about the world. Yeah. Um, and and what what the you know, a lot of people live, a lot of people that aren't sort of tied up in this world, just don't realise what goes on around them yeah, during the day right. and during yeah. the night. You know, um, I knew all that. I'd been exposed to it. I'd, I'd been taught about it taught how to keep myself safe, what to look for, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. So, and that, that probably equates to a bit of the reason as to why when I got to year 11, uh, year 10, I was like, school ain't for me. I'm, 
I, I mm. need to do something in this world type thing. Yeah, right. So, yeah, mate, it was a very, very, um, like I said, very good childhood, um, uh, very interesting. But, you know, we had, I think it was dad was in the UCs, um, a job he worked on. So we, we had contracts on us. That that was part of one one job he did. Um, we weren't overly concerned. <laughs> Funny, we had contracts on us, but we weren't overly concerned. The investigating <laughs> officers was more of a concern because those that put the contracts out knew their real names. Whereas, yeah, right. at least with Dad's piece, it was under his false yeah, identity. Names. Yeah. yeah, so um, you know, but still, to go through that. There's not a lot of people that sort of sit back no. and go, yeah, yeah, we've had contracts on us. Yeah. No, uh, and, um, yeah, at a young age. And it's uh, mm. it's one of those things, you know, like n- knowing the little bit about that world that I know, um, yep. I would have assumed your dad every time he went out with you as the family would have been pretty amped, like out in out in, out in in the, yeah. the, real, the real world. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So he would also shy away from doing a lot of things. Yeah. or keep separate from a lot of things that we might be doing um, to make sure that that distance was there in case there was, yeah. you know, anyone that did Recognize identify him. him sort and of then, thing. yeah. Because, yeah. Yeah, mate, his, his backstory potentially on a job may have been nothing along the lines of a, a yeah. wife and two kids. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. A, a funny story though, um, and I can't remember exactly where it was, and he, he did love telling this one. A guy he actually went to school with who joined the cops as well, he was uh, uh, working out at one one cop station out the back in New South Wales somewhere, and oh, dad's, yeah. gone, dad's gone west to do a job. Pulls into a service station, fill up, uh, fill up his car. <laughs> He's standing in the servo, as he would do, probably getting, you know, Coke or a lemonade and chips. That was, you know, a soft drink and chippies. He loved <laughs> loved his treats. And uh, he's looked out and here comes in the old, um, the old, you know, which majority of the one-station coppers were using then, the, the old um, troop carrier comes, Trippy. you know, bumbling yeah. in. Yeah. And the copper gets out and he's looked at the copper and gone, oh, shit, oh, yeah. this isn't good, knows him. So he's trying to, like, duck and weave and hide and pay and then try and look for a, a back exit. And anyway... There was nothing he could do. The uniform coppers come in and, oh, cocky, how are you? Yeah, what right. are you doing here? <laughs> oh, mate, don't, don't, know, don't know you, I don't know. And just out the door and jumped in the car and took off. And I believe, um, yeah, the phone call was made, jobs off, jobs off, and, yeah. and drove straight back to Sydney. Yeah, um, right. So, yeah, exactly right. Like things along those lines. Um, yeah, de- definitely, definitely um, – it would have been difficult for, and I never spoke to him about this type of thing. But I would assume that it would have been always on 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 edge, heightened yeah. sensory of what's going on, never switching off, um, especially during during those stages of, of yeah. Full-time I, I can imagine work. what that would have been like for him taking you out, like his family mm. out, while he's yep. while he is actually operating on it. Probably probably not just one one identity either. And um, yep. yeah, wow, gee. Yeah, and, um, that, like you think about that from from your. I'm I'm just thinking about that from your perspective. You know, like yeah, that's um yeah that's that's something that not many kids would ever ever have to grapple with. Nah. Is um nah, not at all. Yeah, not at all. So you know, much much more. Yeah, because I I know a lot of people that obviously had parents in the cops and still yeah. do. Um, but 
yeah, ne- never to that extent of yeah, all, all of the the you know the dogs work, the surveillance work, the drug squad work, and then the UC work. You know, you, you talk to a lot of cops around the place that just go, oh, yeah, GD's work is dangerous enough as it is. But when you've got <laughs> GD's coppers going, no way in hell would I do any of that. That's yeah. when you kind of go. Yeah. yeah. Okay. You got to be. You got to be pretty different. Yeah. You got to be different <laughs> um, to, for that one. Yeah, to jump that's... into that line. Um. So. Uh, yeah, mate. Look, ve- very interesting as as a child, sort of growing up in that space. But, you know, like I said, I never sat back and thought this is shit or yeah, right. th- this is this is not normal for yeah, me. I was going to say it, it's just normal. It was for normal, you, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 Um. Yeah. And hence why I think it feeds into that whole thing of. Like I said, my take on the world then and now, um, yeah. the way I sort of then entered my adult life, I would say. So, you know, big thing for me, I when I sort of first hit that 17, 18, 19 years of age, I, I wasn't someone who was big on going out all the time. Right. Um, yeah, I enjoyed mates, enjoyed my circle of friends, um, didn't mind a drink, but just very weary of... Yeah, of the real world because I, I I had it in and I still do it now. I I I look for the the exit. Yeah. I make sure my back isn't to that entry door. You know all those things that he taught me um, yeah. is is etched in my mind about. Yeah, I was going to say even just watching him as a kid, like watching his mannerisms. I guess you just pick yeah. all that up. You pick it up, yeah, because it's yeah. once again it's normal. Hey mate, yeah. sit, sit this side. You know, we'll, we'll sit this side, just things yeah. like that. Um, but at the same time as well, mate, open some some pretty good bloody doors to certain <laughs> things. So, you know, I, um, you know, remember the days of the old toll gates at the top yeah, of the, yeah. uh, the F6 there. And yeah. I, uh, I don't ever remember him paying there. Um, <laughs> and I can tell these stories now because, you know, um, yeah. he's, he's, he's not with us any longer. But um, yeah. uh, parking... Going to the going to the footy and maybe not necessarily parking where everybody else did and maybe not even having a ticket like yeah you know yeah. being open to yeah completely different world but like different I said yeah. it just mate that was normal to us because yeah. we didn't know any different we didn't know any different. Yeah. about that piece of look I, I i really would have loved to have joined the cops but he talked me out of it mm. um, and and like i said that would have been around that time when he was probably starting to have his own not only just what he was doing work-wise but then his own experience with ptsd started mm. to to rear its ugly head and 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 what sort of took place with him over over a, a fairly long period of time right um so, um, yeah, you know, he talked me out of it and basically said, you, you can do better in the world. There's, trust me, you'll, you'll kick goals elsewhere. Yeah, don't, right. don't join the cops. It's shit. <laughs> it was yeah. basically the, the term. So, um, so yeah, um, mate, he, he finished up in 2000. So it, it was roughly around 2007, 2008, sometime in there where he finally got to this point in time where he just didn't go to work one day. And yep. he, this was when he was at the UC, he just didn't go to work. Uh, I remember guys coming down, picking up the car, picking up the phones. Yeah, um, right. Pretty sure he still, you know, he had his weapon at home usually. So, yeah, they would have. Yeah. Um, that that was, you know, all of that being picked up, and then he never went back. Two thousand and nine yeah, right. was officially HOD. He was on the old pre eighty eight scheme. Yeah. Um, 
And one, you know, one of the main things I remember through mum and dad's battle with the cops uh, when um, when uh, they were going for that HOD is um, that the insurance company was fighting it. Yeah. And that that was for me where I just sat back going, this system's wrong. Yeah. Like right. you're, you're you're talking about a bloke that the the government has thrown into the highest, most risky type of work possible. Yeah. Um, and all his signs and symptoms of PTSD and everything's linked to what he's done job-wise, yeah. work-wise. And here is the insurance company on behalf of the cops and behalf of the state Fighting of New South Wales trying to fight it. Yeah. Like I would think that would probably be one of the ones you'd just go, uh, thank you for your service. That's um, right. Yeah. Here's your package. See you later. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, they, Especially they had pre-88. To... Wow, that was a pretty straightforward system back then. Yeah, yep. But yep. yeah, look, unfortunately it hasn't changed much. <laughs> no. <laughs> I won't yeah. go into my side of this. <laughs> um, yeah, that's uh, – well, that's sad to hear actually because, you know, like when you think about it, as you said, like probably, you, you know, you, you probably meant to cap out at three years as a UC for a very good reason because that yeah. – Living in that, you know, consuming and assuming life. It's uh, and doing like swimming with the people that you're swimming with. Yeah. Wow. Holy yep. hell. Ten years. Yeah. That's ridiculous. Anyway. Yeah. So. Yeah. Gee. Well, that's, um, um. Yeah. Look, it's interesting. Yeah. Like just to, yeah, just to hear you talk about it as a normal childhood. Uh, mm. You know, <laughs> kicking around with your your UC dad. Uh, yeah. you know, doing all those things that he would have been doing. Like it's, you know, you can only imagine where his head would have been every time he went out. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, look, mate, I'm, I'm pretty sure he was, you know, taking phone calls for jobs yeah. at home whilst we would have been having dinner and Absolutely, things like yeah. that, you know, like just uh, all, all that type of stuff. Um, yeah. But the, the other thing too was just getting the peak behind the curtain that, a lot of pe- even people that are in the cops don't get to see, yeah. um, you know, the technology that's used, the methodology, um, bits and pieces like that. So um, it was, um, yeah, it was, it was interesting. So you know, funny thing would be, we'd sit there and watch. Remember that TV show Stingers that yeah, was yeah. on, based yeah. in Victoria, and yeah. was meant to be based around, you know, them being UCs and yeah. um, probably similar to watching other sort of, you know, shows, yeah. but. It would sit there and pull it to pieces. Ah, it doesn't happen like that. It doesn't happen like that. Um, but but that's yeah. what, you know, if dad would open the, the door up to people um, very, very selectly yeah. when he would go a little bit deeper, and especially once he finished, that's um, that's what he would sort of, hey, remember that show Stingers? People would be yeah, like, yeah, right. yeah, well, yeah, that's what I did for, you know, one third of my career. Yeah. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah, um, yeah. So, yeah, and, and interestingly, which I, I just remembered while being talking, if you ever get the chance, Secrets of the Jury Room, Malcolm Knox wrote it. Yeah. This is based on a job that Dad did while he was in the UCs, and one of the chapters is uh, titled Undercover M. Uh, chapter 8, Undercover M in Villawood. And that's a whole chapter based on him. So Malcolm Knox, a journalist with um, right. what was he with the, the Herald, the Telegraph, a few other bits and pieces. Um, also into his cricket, sports journalism. He was on the jury. Ah, okay. He sat through this trial, going, "This would make an unreal book," <laughs> and then went out and wrote a book about it. Did um, it? So um, yeah, secrets of the jury room. Um, it's, there you it's, go. So at Dad's funeral uh, a couple of years ago, um, Chapter 8, Undercover M, I actually recited uh, in the eulogy some bits and pieces. Really? Um, yeah, right. From it because, um, yeah, just the way Malcolm, 
described him was what I sat back as a kid and went, that's not my dad. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, yeah. But, you know, that, that's, you they're all the kinds of things that we can unfortunately now release because, yeah. like I said, yeah, he's, he's no longer with us. Yeah, no more contracts. <laughs> well, hopefully not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, wow, holy hell. Wow, that would have been an interesting childhood. Uh, even yeah. though it's normal for you, I'd, uh, yeah, yeah, wow. So moving on from there, I'd really like to talk to you about what it was like as a first responder in a private company setting. So one of the things that obviously in my old role that I – it was something that I came to learn a lot about was actually the the legislation that requires – uh, you know, private first responders on certain sites in not only New South Wales, but as you said, like over in WA, I, I uh, that was bizarre when I found out that there's actually like full-blown emergency services that are private that cover, yeah. you know, towns and stuff like that. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah, what was life like as a as a private emergency services officer? Yeah, look, mate, very interesting and, and you know, you yeah, there's a couple of pockets here in New South Wales, and 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 obviously a big, big chunk in Queensland. But WA is where it's really, really a, a big sector. Um, so very unique from the fact that um, uh, it's it's as you said, it's all privately owned and operated, and and it will depend on the areas that you're in, either on the mine itself, the mine operators, or the mine operators bring in a contract service to provide all their their medical, fire rescue, and and usually security as well. Um, and when we talk, you know, that piece, it's it's not pretend, it's it's full blown um, yeah. capability that is in some parts, you know, and this is what I used to say in Parabadu, where I was based for a period of time with Rio Tinto, we had better capability in the middle of the Pilbara in Parabadu, just outside of Tom Price, then I know some towns in New South Wales and Queensland have, period, yeah. full stop. <laughs> um, yeah, the capability, the dollars invested, um, the training and the development invested is is massive. So very unique that the emergency services have, uh, especially in WA, MOUs in place with the WA state government to, to have the likes of blue and red lights, to, to be on the triple zero system, uh, and also to, in some parts, to use the branding of WA Fire Rescue and, and their SOPs. And, and over yeah, in WA, right. obviously, St. John's Ambulance being the... Uh, the main uh, ambulance operator, so yeah. it's it's contracted, uh, same as Northern Territory. Uh, same with uh, St John's there having uh, MOUs in place to use their SOPs and yeah, right. um, their clinical guidelines and, and other bits and pieces like that. A very big mixture of, of staff, so a lot of staff that have either been in the, the, the professional emergency services on the East Coast, for example, and then find out that they can make twice the amount yeah. of money working <laughs> less the amount of time over yeah. there um, yeah. and jump across. Um, but also WA has a very big volunteer element. Um, so, right. yeah, you've got Perth that does have career firefighters. But if we picked up Perth and overlaid that with, say, um, Sydney, um, uh, where we've got, you know, in Sydney and the outskirts of Sydney and into our regional areas, retained fire stations here in yep. New South Wales. Well, in WA, they're just straight volunteer stations, um, okay. even in that, yeah, that right. urban environment. Um, so very big volunteer element where you get a lot of people realising that they can make a career out of the private emergency services, born and bred out of WA. They'll, yep. you know, they'll grow up in the cadets of the, the fire or ambulance element and then 
they'll get the qualifications and the skills needed and then, you know, quite good jobs open up for them. But what does this mean? You know, this means that you've got private services responding to everything the government services respond to here on the East Coast, but over there on the West Coast in these towns, you know, full-blown prangs, um, industrial-style incidents, fires, truck fires, um, on the mine sites, you know, the, the infrastructure on the mine, power, solar, generators, um, power stations, um, through to the, the big um, haulage trucks and excavators and all that. Um, yeah. there, there's a lot of risk and, and a lot of potential. Yeah, they are high-risk um, sites. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. They are. They are. So, um, But the other factor of all this too is the, the medical part. You know, if, if I think about Roy Hill, the mine site and the camp at Roy Hill, like the, the camp for the Roy Hill development, Gina Reinhardt's um, iron ore mine, um, I, I think it was up to about 6,000 people. Wow. So it, it's, it's a town as, as just a camp, whereas, wow. say, you know, Rio Tinto's set up that I was involved with as well at Parabadoo there and also Tom Price. Um, yes, like you mentioned before, not only is it the industrial element of the mine site itself, mm. but Parabadoo, for example, um, also an airport that I looked over, um, which serviced that area um, yeah. Not just for the miners and and the contractors and the associated people coming in and out, but also general public, um, commercial, yeah, commercial, commercial um, airport, air, yeah, right. airport, yeah. Which the other flip side to that is um, the medical services we had in that area um, was backed up then by RFDS. Okay. So, yep. You know, um, whilst there was a, a hospital in Parabadoo itself, staffed by WA government with um, you know very minimal staffing, but a lot of a lot of funding provided by Rio Tinto to, to help yep. run it. Um, a lot of our serious cases were obviously um, uh, airlifted out from uh, via the RFDS, either you know Broome, Darwin, or, or back down to Perth. Yeah. Um, so you know, still all of the the, the norm kind of jobs that would occur in yep. anywhere, no matter what, whether you're government or, or yeah, I was going to say you put services. six thousand people together. That's that's uh, just any old town. Yeah. Exactly right. Shit they're still gonna, happens. They're going <laughs> to live like people. Yeah, that's right. Yep. And then you talk the Pilbara as well. You know, wet season. Um, yeah. So you still get your floods up there, and then the through the dry season, and... cyclones, storm, tempest, you still get yep. your big fires um, that come through, and then you know dry season as well, big prangs. So you've yeah, got right. your big. Your big road trains running up and down the highways. You've got your grey nomads. Um, yeah, yeah. And, that's a bad mix. Caravans and road trains. Yeah, yeah. mate. Um, prangs. You know, I, I remember attending prangs that were spread across two kilometres, three kilometres. Wow. Because those trucks don't pull up easy yeah. if something does 90 happen. Ninety tons or something. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then the other flip side to all of that is, is some of those areas, depending on where it is, whether the, the, the service is just looking after a mine and a camp or some of the other setups where it's a mine, a camp and a residential town, mm. um, part, part of those arrangements they have with the state government is that they'll also look after a fair big area around the mine, the town as well uh, yep. as part of that MOU. So, you know, a lot of um, uh, a lot of Indigenous communities that, that are those Oh, within services, that area, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. supporting as well. So, you know, jobs traditionally would come through the triple zero system or through the internal emergency response system of the yeah, mine. Yeah, okay, okay. Um, bit, bit of both. Um, but the other big thing too in, in that environment, which is, you know, quite noted over the past few years is um, uh, those private emergency services having to deal with higher numbers of suicide um, on the camps and and people associated with um, uh, the organisations that they're working for. So, you know, I I think back on my time, a a number of suicides having to attend as well as the prangs and the fires and, and everything yeah. else that come with it. So, yeah, mate, you still get your full 
your full mixed bag. But as said, depending on where you are and who you're with, um, very capable and very well-resourced services. But what comes with that is exactly the same problems that our emergency service colleagues in the the government sector on, say, the East Coast are also experiencing as well. And if anything, there's not, you know, there, there can be, a good support system, but there can also be absolutely nothing that yeah. just, you know, dropped like a hot potato. Um, so it has yeah, its some own of, challenges. Some of the companies can be pretty ruthless. And, uh, and uh, yeah, it's just it's just a different world. I mean, like you get pretty used to the government circus, if I call it yeah. that. Um, Bureaucracy. Uh, I can say that now. I'm not in it. But, uh, yeah, sorry, you can, yeah, you'll have to use that word. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I don't mean, yeah, sometimes the companies can be amazing, but, yeah, it's, mm. there's also – um, you know, some pretty pretty bad stories and tied up in that as well. But it is one of those things, you know, I've, I often think back about the places that I used to go to. And as you said, like you'd look at some of these site-based emergency response teams and go, wow, they've got yep. newer gear. They've got more gear than what they've got in town. Yep. And um, so it's not, uh, you know, it's not anyone's poor cousin often. They're, they've actually got, you know, quite advanced capabilities and mm. and an expectation there that they will use those. But as you said, one thing that always used to worry me was that familiarity with the victims because yes. you're talking about a team often, you know, drawn out of the, the general workforce as a part-time arrangement or sometimes Correct. full-time staff that know the, the workforce pretty well. And invariably, you're going to know the people involved and that's always a bad mix. Um and, I, and I've yeah. often thought about it since the heart-to-heart walks, you know, come to be what it is and my involvement in it. It's something I've often reflected on going, wow, you know, I know there's a whole bunch of non-government response capabilities that exist across Australia. And, you know, traditional thinking is, you know, police and emergency services is what a first responder is. But, yep. you know, there's so many private sector uh, people out there looking after banged up people just just like any mm. there's just like that happens out outside the gate yeah um yeah it's sort of it is one of those things that i always want eh, i think they've really been thought of often in in this space no de- and i'd agree with you de- definitely not thought of um and and you know to a degree you could even say just sort of a, a bit off tack here as well that that you know another part of my life being involved in the surf life saving side of things and and lifeguards that there's there's another little sector that yep. doesn't traditionally get sort of thought about yeah okay we can say surf life saving is now an emergency service and you know it's it's the presence um, is now there and the awareness has been raised but up until a couple of years ago um, and even just the culture within that environment as well um, it, it very much a, a poor cousin um, and a forgotten about space too yeah. with with not a lot of um, advocating for um, the right kind of support that's that's needed yeah yeah, um, yeah and just after the back of the year that they've had like Wow, that's been a rough yeah. year for the, for the men and women and boys and girls in that space. And, it has, uh, it has. You know, yeah, wow. Yeah. It's, um, and look, on that private emergency services piece, something that probably a lot of people don't realise as well is that the role that they play is just a hell of a lot more. And what I mean by that is, you know, you could be the, the, the crew that's on to attend, say, a fatality. Potentially, because of the location of some of these sites, 
you're not getting the cops turning up. You're not getting contractors turn up to take deceased away or anything like that. Some Some of those bits and pieces are done from the first arriving crew all the way through to the end of the job, which includes, unfortunately, yeah, right. bagging up and, and potentially removing the deceased. Yeah. Um, yeah. The recovery element as well. You know, if it's really bad praying, it's them and them alone. There's, yep. there's no one else. So it's even that that separation of being able to go, okay, this is a shit job. Let's get this crew out and let's bring yeah. another crew in. There's sometimes at some of these places, they, they don't have that, uh, that number of resources to be able to do that. Yep. Um, even if it is, if, even if it's coming, it's going to take a long time. A long time. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. A long that, time. That's a big burden to shoulder as a, like, yeah, just as a private, private yep. employee of a private company. I think that's a, that's a big burden. And uh, yeah, it's sort of, it, it's one of those things that I've, I've never really lost sight of in my own mind. Uh, but I've on the flip side of that, not, I mean, I'm guilty of probably not raising it more, more uh, than what I have, but it's definitely not a not a well. It's probably not recognised because I don't think people, most people, wouldn't even but know it exists. No, yeah, exactly. And, and look, I must say, when when I was working over west and coming home again, and I would meet people that I didn't know from the emergency services here in, say, back home in New South Wales, and I would tell them what I'm what I did. They'd just look at you and go, that's not possible. Yeah, that's right. You, you could just see the eyes spinning yeah. in the back of the head. And no, yeah. no, 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 no. Only ambulance provide yeah. medical and only, <laughs> you know, or depending where you are, rescues provided by well, New South Wales, umpteen yeah. million different organisations. Yeah, yeah. um, but, you know, fire. No, no, only the fire is. And it, it very much challenged some of the thinking. And this yeah. is where I would always encourage um, some people in that space is um, – yeah, okay, look, you might be employed by the cops or the ambos or the fireys, but there's more to that world than just that organisation you're working with in the state you're in. Have, have a look across not only yeah. the country but across the world as to how other agencies do things. Yeah. Um, you know, don't don't get caught up by all the, um, the you know, the, the, the circus that does go on around you um, and, and get blinkered in. Yeah. Um, there's a fair, you, fair bit of arrogance that goes with that, I think, from an agency yeah. perspective, that if it's not done by a government agency, then it's it's not valued in the same uh, at the same sort of level or equivalency. I don't. I think there's a lot of that thinking there, and definitely. And yep. I know. Uh, actually, I remember back to when I was studying. Uh, one of the one of the main works that I did was actually on that piece of how to embrace private sector capabilities in the yep. current current sort of arrangement structure. Yep. And some of the barriers that were that existed to it were uh, quite interesting. But um, yeah, I mean, look, it, it was always sort of frustrating to know the skill sets and capabilities and equipment that was positioned around New South Wales in my setting, and you know, know know how underutilized they were in very very remote areas, uh, yep. at least anyway. Not sort of so much so in the built up confines over in the east here, but certainly yeah, out yeah. west, it's certainly uh, certainly something worth thinking of. But yeah, interesting. So, I'm just trying to think with your background growing up uh, with a UC dad, you, you've very much tailored your career down a not dissimilar path, really, when you think about it. I mean, you, you're in a service provision role, whether it be government, non-government, and yep. focused on it. So, how much influence do you reckon that upbringing had, even though your dad was trying to talk you out of it? Uh, joining the cops strictly, do you think, yeah. um, you know, seeing him do what he did, do you reckon that played a part in what yeah. you've ended up choosing to do? 
Oh, hundred percent, mate. You're you're byproduct of your environment. That's that's I truly believe that. Um, so you know the the influence of him in the cops, um, of our involvement in surf life saving, has definitely set me up. I believe for for you know where I've where I've ended up. Yeah. Um, and I suppose you know now, yeah, okay. Look, whilst I've still got in my current role, I've still got that little bit of emergency management. Uh, role that I play, but I'm also, you know, now starting to uh, to pick up um, infrastructure, bigger infrastructure pieces, and also into that higher level executive leadership piece. Especially around the the leadership piece, I, I truly believe what I've done, the exposure to things that I've had, you know, being able to be a, a really good critical thinker, um, really being able to to be calm under pressure, think calmly under pressure, et cetera, et cetera, has helped mould me to end up, you know, sort of in this space. Yeah. But but definitely that early influence of, of yeah, an old man in the cops, obviously 80% of his mates were in the cops. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it just, it, it yeah, it definitely has shaped me um, into, uh, into where I've, I've sort of landed. Mm. Yeah, professionally and and also personally as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely. So you're uh, you've balanced uh, a good chunk of your career with your volunteer roles when you weren't sort of full time with it. So yeah, how have you found? How, well, sorry, not how have you found it? How have you managed to balance that? Yeah. Um, Look, definitely uh, the past couple of years have definitely been a struggle. Um, and the reason I say that is is work, the the, the journey and the trajectory I've, I've gone with my professional piece. Um, but also at the same time, when, when Dad passed, he was up to his 17th season as president of Bulleye Surf Club. Right. And that was, you know, when I talk about his PTST journey, the surf club was his his thing. Right. That's, yeah, okay. that's what you know, release the shackles of PTSD that that's he, he invested his time in that. Um, so yeah, when, when he passed very unexpectedly a couple of years ago, there was a number of us that sort of sat around and looked at each other and went, uh, we weren't expecting this to happen. Um, he, he was talking, he was wanting to get to at least 20 years before he made a decision on what he was going to do next. Right. So at that point in time, I'd sort of been surf club wise. Uh, I was director of education for Bulleye, looked after our education piece and, um, a, a little bit of involvement in, in the region's, um, support services, and a little bit of involvement at a state level from a life-saving point of view um, on the on a standing committee, yeah. and obviously bringing my my EM expertise into that to help with all that, especially the transition of surf life saving into becoming an emergency service, providing some some guidance and advice in that to some key people. But yeah, over the years, especially whilst I was in WA and up in Queensland, FIFO, it, it was it was all manageable. It was pretty easy. Um, but yeah, the past few years has definitely been <laughs> quite difficult um, yeah. because of that that situation I talked about there before. But at the same time as well, um, it's a very very rewarding piece to be involved in. Uh, not only the life saving element that I've had a lot of involvement in, but I've also been heavily involved in the the sporting element of of surf life saving as well. Yeah. Um, it's 
it's it's it's like anything that anybody gets involved in, whether it's a footy club, a cricket club, a soccer club. There's a there's a brilliant social element to it. There's um you know a really good I suppose self worth element to it. Yeah, but for me, gotcha. the life saving element is for us in this space. You know we've we've got skills and ability that not the whole general public has. Um, and there is, you know, being, I suppose, local to the area, um, having those skills in the water, um, there probably is a bit of a, a community custodian piece to it as well that, yep. you know, you, you recognise, well, I've got a role to play on this earth and and part of that is is to protect the community. Yeah. Um, and, and for me, that is, you know, making sure that we've got uh, a successful um, surf life saving club that that serves the community in multiple elements we're a community hub we provide the the the, the red and yellow flags on the beach the frontline life-saving services we've got the 24 7 call out ability um, you know we've got the the biggest um, junior um, you know junior movement uh, behind scouts in the world which is nippers junior is activities that right? yeah, yeah okay yeah. Um, so you know the the the, the way that we develop lifesavers, um, but the, the way we develop great Australians um, yeah. through through that nippers element. Um, and then the sporting element as well. It's Surf life saving is a very unique piece where there's it's got so many facets to it. Yeah, um, that, yeah it's a bit know, different can, to the traditional volunteer sort of emergency services role, isn't it? Because they have a little different. bit of social social element to that, but it's, yep. you know, typically not tied up in, in the same activity as a sporting activity as well, yeah. Correct, correct. And, and and even the other thing too, when you look at the frontline life-saving patrols, you know, the SES and the RFS don't just go and sit somewhere waiting for a fire to start yeah. uh, or, or waiting for a storm to come in. You know, whereas lifesavers are on the beach every Saturday, Sunday and public yeah, holiday. that's true. Patrolling yeah. the beaches. So even the methodology and the way that we serve the community is is distinctly different. different. Yeah. And that, that creates a different culture and that definitely creates a different social element as well. But that has its challenges too. With yep. surf life saving now being in the emergency services space, like yep. there's there's a lot of elements of surf life saving that don't want to be an emergency service. Yeah, okay. um, and they don't they don't understand why the importance or or what value we can provide the community being under that that emergency service banner. Um, yep. So it's it's look it 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 can be very challenging at times, um, but it can also be very rewarding at times. But it, it's also a thing I suppose. Look for me. You know, I'm I'm a third generation. My grandfather was one of the original beach inspectors on the mid north coast. Huh. Um, Dad was obviously heavily involved. I'm heavily involved, and now my young bloke's fourth generation. Like, yeah, it's, wow. I think it's it's just in it's in our blood. It's in, yeah. ingrained in us. Um, you know, to be oh, in this space. So, um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Um, but um, yeah, look, it, 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 it's 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 something that I recommend. If there are people out there that are, are looking to get involved in something and you're near the coast and you're near a surf club, it's it's well worth going and having a look at because there there genuinely is something there for everyone. You, you don't actually need to be the old, you know, 80s bronzed Aussie icon <laughs> in a pair of sluggos. Um, there, there's a lot. There's a there's a there's a whole heap yeah. of different roles and 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 um, bits and pieces that people can can be involved in and playing yeah, in this space. Yeah. One of the things to do, I'm, I'm not 100% sure of the backstory with your old man, but one of the elements of the walk's focus is that premature mortality piece of emergency services workers. And a few people have actually thought that was 
a polite way to say suicide and it's like no no <laughs> separate yep. thing it's it's the anecdotal evidence there is about long-term emergency services people bloody die young and uh, unexpectedly is that something that you want to talk about or I, I don't know how yeah. sensitive it is or what the circumstances with your old man were but um so um dad had a stroke right. um uh completely unexpected um yeah look he had he had some heart issues um and he'd got to uh dual knee reconstructions um a couple of years ago as well um but you know at age 60 um pretty much uh one basically the story when i think it was a, a monday night um sitting at home vision went a bit fuzzy um mum sort of went, eh, that doesn't sound right, took him up to Bulleye Hospital and then they quickly moved him to Wollongong Hospital. And anyway, it came back that, yeah, look, you've, you've had a little episode overnight. They released him Tuesday morning and then um, Thursday of that week, so only the couple of nights later, same yeah. thing started happening at home, called an ambulance straight away into Wollongong. He settled overnight. Uh, mum was talking to the hospital Friday morning. Um, I was on the Gold Coast for work. I was sitting at Gold Coast Airport um, trying to fly back home. There was no real concern. It was just, look, he's had another little episode. We're yeah. thinking it's medication or whatever it may be. We'll yeah, you know, yeah. work on this. Um, she was just waiting for the phone call to go on, go in and pick him up. And then phone rang and said, oh, look, we don't, we're not sure what's happened. Um all we can tell you is we're currently prepping him. We're waiting for an ambulance to turn up and he's going lights and sirens to um, uh, Prince of Wales. Oh, yeah. Um, which then ended up being um, RPA. talking to his cardiologist as well after all of this and his cardiologist has seen all the the reports and and everything that during that that sort of 48 hours of of what was compiled and he just can't understand what occurred with the medication that he was on and everything like that so look I, i don't know i i do sit back and wonder the effects of the trauma um hmm. of of work um of ptsd um so I'm assuming he was a pretty physically fit guy, you know, mm. hanging around the surf club and everything like that. So, hundred percent, didn't yeah, smoke, right? Non non smoker, like I said, didn't mind a drink. Um, uh, when when he had one, non smoker, um, swam swam all his life. Um, did compete as an Ironman, paddled boards and skis. Right. Um, has has uh, you know, um, for a number of years with Surf Life Saving. Uh, so did represent New South Wales in Surf Life Saving. Played footy. Um, very well known in the, the police footy circles. Okay. Went on the um, the nineteen ninety two New South Wales Police tour that followed the um, the Kangaroos tour through England. Yeah, um, right. The un- undefeated cops team. He was the halfback of that team. Um, wow. Uh, yeah. No. Like so. Yeah. Very fit. Very capable. As the years went on, his knees gave him problems. And, yeah, and footy that, player though. Yeah. Footy yeah. player and board paddling. So kneeling, kneeling on a rescue board in the days when there was no padding, it was just right. straight on the fiberglass. On so fiberglass, all of that yeah. didn't help. Um, but yeah, no, look, very fit, very capable. Still mm. swam till the day he died. Yeah. Um, so yeah, mate, look, I, I, 
we never got an autopsy done for obvious reasons. Yeah, there yeah. was no need to. But yeah. look, the the I suppose this is the the paramedic that comes out in me wondering the medical aspects. What really did happen? What yeah. was the effects of you know twelve fifteen years of that? Um, when he was sort of diagnosed with PTSD, but then also before that, what what were all the effects of all of that? And, and yeah. you know, one thing, he did struggle to sleep um, and he did recite mainly one of the, well, what he would release, one of the main jobs that he attended that was always be the thing that he would come right. back to. And that was a um, that was a truck crash up the top of uh, the old Princess Highway up here at um, oh, yeah, right. Madden's Plains, um, an acid truck. Uh, I believe <laughs> it was a car uh, truck versus car prang. Um, so you know you can only and this was sometime in the early eighties. So yeah. um, that was something that really played on his mind. I don't know why, but that did. Out of everything he saw, that one played on his mind. Yeah, um, okay. Whether it was a thing of it, you know, knowing that it was a, knowing that it was acid when they turned up, going through the vehicle, yeah. you know, something happened people, there. Yeah. yeah, people can probably put two and two together of what may have been seen. But um, yeah. yeah, look, I, mate, I, I do really wonder that that um, you know that piece of um, premature mortality. I I reckon. There's something in that space There's, with there him. There is something there for sure because, I mean, yeah. the, the anecdotal uh, piece that, you know, a lot of people talk to is exactly that. They don't really yeah. know there's some link there to this perpetual stressed state Correct. that a lot of people like your dad live in um, yeah. and, and the consequences on, on long-term health. Um, yeah. You know, obviously you have some linkage. So, you look, I'm really hoping the walk, uh, the research piece that the walk will obviously be uh, involved in post post the actual physical walk. Um, yep. Yeah, it's definitely something you're going to focus on. Mm. It's, um, it's not really been very well explored scientifically, uh, and you know, with with proper research. So um, yeah, yep. it'll be interesting to see what comes of that. Jamie, the one of the things that I've been wondering about uh, being the son of a police officer, and you've you've definitely seen traits in your dad uh, over the years that you've spoken about today, with your operational background and the not only the sort of sort of work you've been doing, but the tempo that you've been working at over the the period of time that I've known you certainly has been extremely high and. Um, you know, knowing about the the WA service and mm. and other other um, private and uh, public sector emergency response work that you've done over the years, do you do you see any observations within yourself that might be somewhat similar to what you've you, you saw in your dad or or other emergency services workers that you know? Yeah, look, definitely, and I suppose if I start off personally myself. Um, and you know, ne- never I, you know, not proclaiming to have ever been in obviously any of the line of work that he did, um, but definitely stress and pressures that would be equivalent. Yeah. Um, and you know, I, I, I reflect on and, and something you know we never even really touched on was my time at transport, where I think back to the the 2019 2020 fires um yeah. that southeastern corner of new south wales like that that was my area that i managed um and i think i you know spent uh down on the south coast there in the middle of those fires managing that whole 
shit fight that yeah. was going on yeah, yeah. across that new year period with with a number of key yeah, people. God, that's right. Um, I remember that now. That was a mess. So, you know, that, that, that was close to some periods of time there, three, four days just straight. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, you know, and then add in the, the other bits and pieces. Yes, look, I one, every now and again, I do stop and think and wonder what has that effect been on me. Yeah. Uh, I, I do every now and again catch myself to be in a very uh, – I, I, I do things that I remember Dad did. So, for example um, – uh, and this is something you know, I've, I've definitely spoken to my wife about, and I, and I I am aware of it, but I do get really irritated with my kids very very yeah. quickly, and I do go from zero to a hundred very very quickly. And I think back, and I remember Dad doing that. Yeah. Um, um, not not so much at us as kids, but but just going from zero to a hundred like that. And when you look yeah. up the traditional signs and symptoms of of yeah yeah that's definitely uh, one that of them. piece. It's it's <laughs> yeah. in there. Um, so look, yeah, mate, I, I do sit back and I do reflect that there are we do have very similar traits. Um, that exposure to traumatic situations, trauma to, to the, the, the psychological trauma yeah. um, and, the, and the stresses towards um, uh, that psychological piece uh, um, have been there. Um, so, yeah, what have I done about it? That's probably the piece where I, I like I said before, I, don't, I haven't really been doing what I would preach. Yeah. Um, I'm... I'm I like to look after my people first. So, you know, another major incident that I think of that we had within the surf club was a couple of years ago where we had a a boat overturn off Peggy's and I had 60 plus odd surf club members involved in one of the biggest uh, multi-agency rescues that uh, Wollongong seen or the Illawarra seen since Buddy uh, Waterfall. Um, Now that, that was a boat with seven people on board, seven males on board. We had concurrently on the beach after we rescued uh, all seven males from the boat and returned them back onto the beach under seven minutes. We had four concurrent resuscitations going on across the beach within the space of 30 meters. Um, now that that was all my people um, that that first responded to that within the first you know 10 15 minutes um, I spent a big chunk of time making sure my people were okay but you know the part of that was I was on that first IRB that got to the scene um, I then ran the the scene um, with the resource happening coordinating the scene until uh, you know, the cops got there and, mm. and, and the Ambos got there as well. And I, I still remember the first scatty coming down onto the beach um, that sort of, I just remember him looking at me going, oh, shit. And it's yeah. like, okay, you know you've got issues when the scatty's going, <laughs> that's right. ah. Yeah, that's a bad <laughs> day. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it, luckily though in that particular job, it was the the, the likes of um, the connections with people that, that then made that job work. You know, the, the copper running the show, Darren Brown, um, that a lot of, a lot of people know within the cops, uh, um, Norm Reeves from the Ambos who has yeah. a long, long history. Um, been there within forever. The Ambos. <laughs> yeah. Yep. You know, it was, it was, it was us three that, that were doing that main part of it for a long period of time. Um, but that the after effects of that, I, as, as president in my first year of being president, it was, I've got to look after my people. I've got to right. look after my people. Have I taken the time to, to make sure that, you know, just off that one job that I'm okay? No, I probably haven't. Um, and then if I amass that on a whole heap of other things that I've done over the years or had exposure to, 
Um, and another thing I think of, 1920 bushfires. I remember standing in the Nowra, the, the Shoalhaven EOC um, at the RFS on Albatross Road. And one of the firebirds was showing the direct feed on the screen was a, a rural house burning to the ground. Um, and everyone standing around, like the, I just remember the room being silent and everyone standing there watching it. And a lot of people in that room, in that EOC, are not the kind of people that get exposed to that frontline kind mm. of piece straight up or, or, or in their lifetime. You know, a lot yeah. of liaison officers, blah, blah, blah. And I remember just standing there watching that happen and then pretty much turning around and going, right, what do we need to do next? And I remember reflecting that night going, I had some of my team members in tears that they just watched a house burn down and my reaction to it was, right, what, what what's next yeah, on the list next? to do? We've, we've got a lot to do. And, and that's when I sort of started to think... In my own mind, am I insular to some of this stuff? Have I built a really good barrier of being able to distance the the, the psychological impact of mm. what I'm seeing and what I'm doing? Or have I crossed that line where I've got to that point of the bucket's just continuing to fill and fill and fill and fill and it's going to topple over at some mm. point? Um, so, you know, the, the, I, I do, I do self-reflect and... I, I do challenge myself on yeah. what, what, what's my what's my head doing in this space and am I going down the same path and what can I do about it um, and how can I have that self-care to make sure that, you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I was it, just wondering, like yeah. on, on reflection of, you know, your observations of your dad and, um, yeah, I was just wondering whether that made you really focus on your own thresholds or whether or not it was a bit normalised actually. I was sort of wondering whether it was one way or the other. It, it, and, it, it's uh, yeah. it's probably it's a bit normalized for me yeah you know i and and i've always thought that i've been given a set of skills and 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 capability to do what i do for a reason so it's that whole thing of um no nah, no nah, I, I i can't let that affect me because yeah. this is what i'm here to do type thing yeah, yeah. but like i said is there any kind of self-care going on or, or any kind of um, work going on in my own head to make sure that I do manage that piece. Well, yeah, that's where, if I be honest, I probably could improve on that yeah. space. Um, so, yeah, I, um, I don't know. I, I, to be honest, mate, it's, it's probably not a real a real answer. It's probably just a whole yeah. heap of jumble put together. No, I, was just, I really was wondering. Yeah, no, look, it certainly will. And, and uh, you know, from me, I was just wondering whether it made you really hone in on it and, and really maybe overcompensate with yourself to make sure you didn't yeah. go down that path or whether or not it might have been normalised and you, and you maybe um, – you know, maybe didn't really uh, recognise it m yep. as much as you might because you'd sort of had it normalised in your childhood. Normalized, so, yeah, yeah, sort of look, wondering where that where that would land. Look, look, like I said, for others, I'm very aware of it for others and especially others if I talk like the life-saving element. You know, people are on the beach patrolling and involved in that job that I spoke about mm. there, the boat overturning. They're normal people going about their life day in, day out. Yes, they get a bit of training to, to, to respond, but not to a significant incident yeah. along those lines. You know, um, they've got to go back to their lives with their families, yeah. you know, either as a plumber or a teacher or a this or a that, whereas um, they're the ones that I'm really concerned about. Yeah. Um, because they haven't had this exposure to that yeah. type of thing before. It's interesting um, you say that because that's definitely something that both 
Dan Pronk when I spoke to him on the podcast and, and yep. uh, Alan Sparks actually um, just recently, he, you know, they both really honed in on that uh, focus, I guess, on that volunteer element that's part yep. of these response arrangements about how, you know, their training probably doesn't involve stress inoculation elements to it. And, yeah, they certainly are, you know, just taking time off from their day job or their, their life to go and do something that they enjoy for the good, you know, out of the goodness of their heart. But it's, of um, you yeah, know, yeah, it's, yeah. it's one of those things that could be really, um, yeah, really, really taxing on them just because of those, those, those circumstances. Yep. Stuff. Yeah. Hey, look, we've, uh, we've covered a lot of territory, a lot of job <laughs> roles and, uh, yeah, look, thanks very much for, um, I suppose giving us a bit of an insight into what it was like to grow up in that household, because uh, as I said, like we've only really ever heard of it from the uh, the person involved's point and talking talking about their children or whatever. And uh, yeah, it's a very interesting perspective. Um, no problems that you've shed on it. One thing I do absolutely have to ask you though is we're putting together a playlist for the walk and. Have you got a song that you uh, have in your head when you're on that paddleboard, looking at the boy out in the wild ocean, paddling, <laughs> paddling for it out there? And uh, have you got a song that you'd recommend for the walkers? You can't do uh, days of summer. I think uh, I spoke to one of the other <laughs> lifesavers, Tony, Tony Waller. I think he went Mr. with Waller. the he went yes. with the traditional uh, uh, boy. What is it? Days of summer or boys days of summer? Of summer. Yeah, yeah, I did. I did hear that one. I know know Tony very well. Um, I knew you yeah, would. Yeah. Uh, no, no. Look, no, mate. Mine, mine is, and and um, I'm just trying to remember if any any of the other guests have mentioned this one, and I'm hoping they haven't. But, um, mate, for me, it's uh, it's uh, Jimmy Barnes, working class man. I don't think um, that's on there. No, I don't okay. think it is. Yeah. So, look, mate. The backstory behind that is that that was one of the songs uh, that was that was played at Dad's funeral. Okay. Um, and I think you know for. Uh, not only him, but the lot, you know, yourself and and the others that that are invested in this. That at the end of the day, just normal people doing jobs. Yeah. You know, at the end of the day, they're, they're, you know, working class men and women uh, yeah. um, should say as well. Um, so you know, it, it, I, I think yeah, okay. When when the song was written, it, it might not have been written about the emergency services or yeah, yeah. Or, or where you're at with this, but. I feel like uh, for me personally, it's, you know, I, I look across this world that we live in um, and I look at, you know, the, the, the people, the men and women that work in this space. And at the end of the day, they're just normal people that have signed up to do a job. Yeah, um, yeah it's a bit different to another job, but, you know, they're just trying to make ends meet. They're just, you know, yeah. doing the grind, doing what needs to be done, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that, you know, probably signifies uh, that these kind of jobs, yeah, you know, it, it, it's down and dirty. You get yeah. gritty. You're in the grind. Um, so, yeah, for me, that that was, yeah. Cool. Um, yeah nice. That would be it. Well, mm. that's going to be on there now. And, um, yeah, look, thanks very much for your time today. And, uh, you know, it's it's actually been really cool to talk about that private sector first responder as well. That's something that we've definitely not touched on until now. So um, yep. really appreciate your, uh, your, you know, opening up that one for the, uh, for the discussion 
to be included in the discussion going forward too, because I think they're often yep. often either not not known of or not not understood or recognised in this space either. So, yep, appreciate it. No, cool, mate. Thank you very much for the time, and um, yeah, looking looking to see how I can continue to advocate for you guys. And yeah. um, I wish I could come on the walk. To be honest, um, <laughs> I just don't have the time, yeah, <laughs> unfortunately. No, no. But um, mate, good luck with it. I love everything you're doing in this space, and 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 the rest of the team, and happy to help in any way possible. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks very much. You've been listening to the Heart to Heart Foundation podcast. People on their own journey for the awareness of mental health in our first responders. Thanks for listening and please remember to support our foundation by going to the webpage at www.hearttoheartwalk.org. That's www.heart2heartwalk.org or just Google it.